there's simply not enough money in the system. That's number one. The world is struggling. And now with COVID and the slowdown of economy, it would be even a bigger challenge. There are competing demands for any government. The demands of health, the demands of education, uh, making sure people have decent jobs. There are incentives for the industry. There are incentives for making sure that different services for society continue. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Professor Shahbaz Khan. Professor Khan is currently the director of the UNESCO Regional Science Bureau for Asia and the Pacific and also serves as the UNESCO representative for Brunei Darussalam, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Timor-Leste. He joined UNESCO in 2008 as chief of the Water and Sustainable Development Section at the UNESCO Division of Water Sciences based in Paris. His key leadership and management areas at UNESCO have included science capacity building and policy advice across the region. Professor Khan has coordinated key programs such as water education for sustainable development, eco-hydrology, water and ethics, amongst many others. He previously served as the research director of the Irrigated Systems and Rural Water Use Areas of the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization in Australia, and also served as Professor of Hydrology and Director of the International Centre of Water at the Charles Stewart University in Australia, where he conducted policy research on the nexus of water, energy, and food. Professor Khan also continues to serve as adjunct professor at numerous universities in Australia, New Zealand, Pakistan, and China. Professor Khan, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much, Safa, for such a nice introduction and for inviting me to your very interesting podcast. Thank you so much. Maybe we can begin by you first telling us about the experiences or reasons that you were interested to study climate and water management and the reasons that kind of motivated you to pursue that career path. I grew up in a farming family in Pakistan. So people who are struggling with their day-to-day life, basic needs like food to have enough to be able to survive a year and water plays a very important role. And then also in Pakistan, there is a big challenge for coping with climate variability and climate change. So one year there can be a lot of rain. It can lead also to floods and there can be years when there can be droughts. So that always intrigued my mind. How do we study? How do we help our farmers? And can there be a better life for everyone? Pakistan is a country which is very rich in water resources with many rivers and irrigation system is very special. And I wanted to be an engineer, a civil engineer, engineers who work on the issues related to conveyance of water, linking with dams, with barrages, and to explore the wonders of the world. So that's how I became fascinated with water. And that has continued throughout my life. And I came to Australia, where water is a key driver for growth as well. And Australia is one of the most arid countries. 
So that's where I continued my journey into water resources, climate variability, climate change, dealing with food security, with human security, and many times also issues related to conflict and water. And within United Nations system, as you mentioned, working in the area of water management in Paris gave me the opportunity to see these issues in other countries and now in Asia Pacific with the sustainable development goals and challenges of sustainable development. Very interesting. During your academic studies at that stage, were your career aspirations to remain in the academic sector, in the research sector? Or from that earlier age, did you know that you would also like to contribute to sustainable development work and help with advising governments and working in multilateralism? Or is that just something that kind of evolved naturally? Uh, Now working in UNESCO, I have a very different thinking than maybe when I was a student. My point of view is sustainable development can only be possible if everyone contributes. Every individual on this earth, whether student, whether farmer in a city, somebody working in a private company, somebody working in academia, or someone working in the United Nations system. So I have evolved from personal thinking all the way to be able to contribute to negotiations at the level of the United Nations. But throughout this continuum, sustainable development is not something independent of the lives of individuals. So everything we do in this world contributes one way or to the other for better or for worse outcomes. And that's where for sustainable development, we have to get our thinking right that everyone has to play a role. And in those roles, we have to carefully think what uh, we want for ourselves, our planet, and how do we make sure that nobody's left behind? One of your earlier experiences was uh, working at the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization in Australia. Could you speak to us a bit about the work that you were doing there and what you were focusing on in that organization and your work there? So far, I was working right in the middle of the Murray Darling Basin. There is a place called Griffith. So I was head of irrigation research. This was the time when there was a millennium drought from year 2000 to 2010. So there was not much water to go around. Farmers were struggling, but also there was a big pressure. We should give most of this water back to the environment. Australia is a very interesting country. If there was no water and no irrigation, the population would be only in big cities like Melbourne or in Sydney or Earth. So how do we make sure that uh, the socioeconomics of those regional areas continue? So my work was to look into how can we make uh, water management more efficient? How can we grow more crops per drop? How can we create better social and environmental outcomes? And how do we build capacity among farmers? So there were many tough conversations. There were many arguments and the divisions across society. And being the leader for irrigation research, I was called upon both from the city dwellers as well as from the farmers to help resolve many of these issues. In the process, working very carefully for the role of science to be independent and providing the right kind of information, facts and figures, uh, keeping impartial stance, but at the same time making sure that we have the right facts and figures, taking a systems view. How does the whole um, water equation work? How can we look across the whole river system, right from 
the upper catchments all the way into the sea to South Australia. So in that case, there were many challenges for science from the point of view of growing a plant, how much water is needed for different plants, how much water goes through soil, how much water should go back to the river, what is the link with the climate, the practices which farmers are doing in terms of growing rice or wheat or maize, are there the best practices or can we really change? And if we change, what would be the benefits to the environment? What would be the benefits to the farmers? And can it be sustainable? So there were many of those kind of challenges. I published a lot at that time. But very importantly, I contributed to the national debate. And in the process, uh, my research was recognized by UNESCO and also by the Australian government and many stakeholders. So that has been a very fascinating part of my journey in the area of water and climate. Wonderful. That's so interesting. You mentioned the different needs and perspectives of farmers who are struggling versus city dwellers and the different stakeholders. Sometimes there are debates or arguments. In those situations, what have you found to be maybe some approaches that have helped you ensure that all stakeholders' voices are heard and considered in the process of policymaking or in the process of creating responses to these needs? Most important thing suffer was to understand what are the perspectives. For example, if you go to a farmer and to a farm or to an irrigation district, farmer may think they are the best farmers in the world. They do not waste any water. Uh, the channels never leak. Irrigation area is most efficient. And if you hear the views of the environmentalists, they say these are the worst farmers in the world. They do not do the proper irrigation practices. There is a lot of salt which is mobilized. Then also there may be views from the regulators that the water is being not measured properly. There is a lot of wastage and also unaccounted flow. So you can imagine now with all these different views and science has to play a role in the middle of all of this. So as a scientist, as someone responsible for the area of irrigation management with many colleagues working with me, I needed to make sure that we hear all those perspectives. So as step number one, we bring all the stakeholders together. And this was really very bold when there were many people who were very skeptical of the science as well, saying that scientists can be bought, issues can be dealt by the scientists and consultants the way somebody pays them. So how do we keep our independent stance in that case? So very carefully, building databases, building evidence, looking into the soil systems, looking into the cropping systems, looking into how much water is coming from where, how it travels through the catchment, how it goes through the irrigation canals, applying new technologies like drones, special ways of looking through the canals with the resistivity surveys, also looking into measurement of the water which is going on different crops, looking into the leakages, uh, bringing the best of the technologies from the satellites, and then very carefully building the balances and the evidence which can track where the water came from, how it has been used, if there are some losses, where those losses have went, have those losses been captured by somebody else. And then very importantly, if there is a balance sheet of the water resources within an irrigation area or within a catchment, how do we compare with the rest of the world? Is it possible to improve further? And if there is further improvement, what would be the investment needed? And who should pay for it? Should it be farmers? Should it be environment? Should it be larger society? And if we have to have cheap food, for example, 
cheap maize or different fruits or drinking wine which is enjoyable and people want to have it but if to be kept low then who should pay for it is it the farmer's job or society should pay for some of uh, these gains also giving to all the workers working uh, in my team that they are being heard and uh, their skills are being properly used and also linking with the society at large and linking with universities and looking into collaboration in with other countries so that we can do comparative analysis as well so once this kind of work would be compiled after 5 or 6 years of collection of data analysis modeling working together with the farmers as well as with the wider society provided the basis for those dialogues which helped resolve these big issues and that led to 10 year john howard investment of 10 billion australian dollars where much of my research and my colleagues research was used to guide where should we save water or how to apply technologies who should pay how can we recover some of those water resources so basically not some job to be done within a very short period of time it is work which has to be consistent over a longer period working closely with all stakeholders building trust and bringing the credibility which people put their trust in absolutely you touch on so many important points in terms of the political considerations sometimes when there is strong evidence base or strong scientific argument for a particular issue whether it's around environmental issue climate issue whatever the example is sometimes despite the scientific evidence base or the scientific research or the scientific arguments and lobbying there is a lack of political will so in your experiences of working with government or advocating with governments what have you found to be the challenges or the best ways to approach trying to shore up political will or get governments to support and buy into the findings of scientific research very important the water climate change the issues of food security there are no more the issues for a particular location these issues are connected beyond the immediate boundaries they go across uh, many of the political boundaries as well so that's where we need to think bigger and think about the bigger systems like we cannot solve any matter related to a river unless we take a whole of the river approach whole of the catchment approach if we are tackling the climate change issues then we have to think of the bigger whole of the world approach as you know with the paris agreement and also there are many issues of the rivers which are across many of the political boundaries and that's where there may be neighbors who may not like to work with each other so that's where cooperation is the key participatory approaches are very very important uh, data sharing on time is critical for saving lives for example for issues to deal with floods and longer term impacts of droughts issues related to climate change where many of the countries may be at the receiving end for example pakistan which may not have as much development as compared to many of the other countries which have developed much earlier and have much bigger climate change footprint because of those kind of bigger global challenges many countries are at the receiving end and there may be some countries which are too small for example like timor leste to be able to deal with many of these challenges because of the issues of capacity the issues related to investment so that's something we need to uh, bring forward to solve any of these issues of sustainable development related to natural resources related to water resources related to climate change 
we have to think much bigger than our own boundaries and we need to go beyond the biases. And also very importantly, from the research point of view, how do we de-learn from uh, what we know and how do we learn what others know and how do we bring the bigger picture together by bringing social scientists, natural scientists, engineers, people who are working on the legal issues. And that's where there are many barriers from the nomenclature point of view, from the social biases point of view, from the political considerations point of view. As you mentioned, how do we get over those political considerations where the issue may be much different than what the politicians may be thinking in terms of winning the immediate votes and making decisions where a wider public is happy, but the natural resource management challenges still remain. And that's where the only way forward for us is to make our arguments on the basis of the best science available at any time and make sure that we do not get biased by any of the political agenda. We continue to look for the truth, make sure that we build trust that science, what is being done from the science and research has the credibility and has the buy-in by uh, those stakeholders who need to make tough decisions. Yes, as you say, you mentioned earlier that this process requires trust building and time. I also want to ask you about an experience that you had working as part of the team that developed a computer-based early warning system for floods in Pakistan. Could you speak to us a bit about that experience and the impact of that work? This project about floods in Pakistan is something I have done over many years. When I graduated from Birmingham and went back to Pakistan, this was one of the first projects I was assigned. And one of the challenges at that time, and still it remains, how do we access data across boundaries like between India and Pakistan who may not be very willing to share the data? So at that time, in the late 1990s, we installed weather radars, radars which could look up to more than 400 kilometers from where they were installed and they could look into where the rain is falling and how we convert the data from the radar into the precipitation data. And then we use some models which can then provide estimate of how that precipitation, that rainfall turns into flow, uh, flow into the rivers and how this water flows from the rivers all the way through different boundaries. So that was the work in late 1990s. And then I moved to Australia, where I explained some of the work on irrigation and other water resources issues. But I kept my interest in challenge of managing floods and the issues related to transboundary water. So in 2010, I was working in Paris, and there was a very bad flood in Pakistan, which affected more than 20 million people, and it caused cluster losses. More than 2,000 people lost their lives. So I was sent along with some other experts and we explored what are the reasons. One of the reasons was that the data is not adequate still. And this time now the challenges have shifted to the bigger Indus River. There is a climate shift which has caused the water to come from a different catchment than what used to be before. And we need to use now maybe a satellite-based information. The radars may not be enough. So that's where we work with the colleagues from Japan, especially from one of the UNESCO centers there in Scuba. And we work with Pakistan Meteorology Department. We work with the engineers from the Water and Power Development Authority and from the irrigation departments to develop early warning system 
which goes right up to the borders with Nepal on one side. On the other side, it looks into Afghanistan. Also, the models are capable of looking into the rainfall in India. So looking into all those upper catchments and building a database of what are the kind of soils, what is the kind of vegetation, uh, how the topography looks like, and bringing this information into computers. So basically capturing how the catchments are into the computers. Then on top of that, bringing in power of satellite technologies, which can give us idea about the preservation. So we bring that along with uh, these uh, models of the catchments, the vegetation and soil and build a computer system which can give us lead times of more than two weeks in uh, most places to forecast what would be the amount of rain, amount of flow, and if the flow goes through the river up to what level it can reach. If there is a barrage which is breached, what would be the implications? And if the protection levies are breached, what would be the limitations? Where are the schools? Where are the protection places? And doing different type of scenarios in a real-time environment. But at the same time, building capacity of the local people so they will not depend on UNESCO to help them over and over again. And at the same time, create cooperation among countries, for example, between Afghanistan and Pakistan, so that they can learn from each other because one of the rivers, Kabul River, is transboundary river between these two countries. So building such capacity, they can build their own models. They can have cooperation. Also, bringing the latest education to the universities and linking them with the universities in Japan so that our graduates can be the new developers of such technologies. Also, very importantly, strengthening the data. And strengthening the data means how can we measure data of rainfall? of sunshine, of evaporation. So many of those what we call climatological parameters on ground so that we can compare them, the information coming from the satellite. But at the same time, use the telephone technologies so that this data in very difficult terrain can directly come to the meteorology offices or we can access this data anywhere in the world using the internet. And we have to make sure that the technology is well understood by the local people. And this technology can be replicated, and it should not be too expensive. So from one such weather station, which was supposed to be for $50,000, with the local indigenous effort and by coaching and training people, we brought the cost to less than $5,000. And we installed many of them. We created cooperation between Afghanistan and Pakistan, between different provinces of Pakistan, between different departments, cooperation and avoiding conflict. This project is operational. The models have been handed over. Cooperation between Japan and Pakistan and Afghanistan still continues. And now the next generation of improvements are being done by the Pakistani engineers themselves. What a fantastic project. In cases where, you know, you mentioned in this case there was a flood or in the previous examples where there's a drought. And in these situations where people's lives have been lost and people's lives continue to be in peril or in, in vulnerable situations, is the feeling of responsibility or the speed in which you work or your colleagues and yourself work, is that affected? Does that have an impact on how you approach the project, knowing that it really has such a tangible and immediate impact on people's livelihoods? This is a very important question. Uh, how all those people who are linked with these river systems, attachments, with our wider climate, 
so that they can be the real beneficiaries and our work becomes tangible and we are not publishing work for creating more paper and journals and all of that. that that really remains a challenge for all of us so in this case for example the case of pakistan very importantly the ideas which need to be tackled have to come from the real stakeholders so we must involve them right from the beginning so there is a very good acceptance and then also making sure the political powers are well aware there is also a connection at the political level and mobilizing the embassies of the countries creating linkages among the relevant ministries across different countries that's all very very important on ground level uh, very important for the local people to understand what do they do which makes a difference for example how can they become part of solution rather than part of the problems how they make sure that they do not deforest for example their catchments what can be the opportunities for them by having better management practices so that's all very important and now coming to similar issues in southeast asia especially indonesia there is a very big challenge of deforestation for example and we have unesco man and biosphere program unesco world heritage especially the tropical rainforest heritage of sumatra there are similar challenges here how do we promote protection of the forest protection of orangutans how do we make sure people are proud of their heritage but they do not starve so uh, there is a challenge for us to create opportunities in terms of tourism in terms of uh, local industries creativity mobilizing the youth so there is a, a sense of ownership by the communities and communities are taking the right kind of action in chitaram river which is passing through all the catchments upper catchments and coming to, to jakarta uh, we have challenges like how do we educate people that they don't throw plastic how do we make sure that the waste from houses is not going straight into the river how do we make sure that the pumping of groundwater in cities like jakarta can be controlled that the subsidence does not continue shorelines do not continue to sink climate change is causing the sea level level rise but because of the pumping if we make the cities go down even faster what is the future these kind of challenges still stay and that's where i say tragedy of the commons because if there is this challenge of making sure everyone is becoming part of the solution if some people think if they do something uh, different than sustainable way of doing then everyone will be on those non sustainable practices and in the uh, long run there would be a big challenge to managing the sustainability and that's where uh, the issues of responsibility of education uh, political will political awareness and the longer term benefits by doing the right thing all of them become very very important in your work in unesco what have been your experiences with navigating the financial system in terms of allocating donor funding or funding from private sectors resources or the challenges that come with sometimes competition for funding or the conditions of funding or lack of funding earlier you mentioned the question of who should pay for what what role should different stakeholders play in terms of the investment question so could you please tell us a bit about your thoughts on the financial system that exists everyone has to play their role that's my first conclusion of working at the international global levels how do we make sure that people understand what is the fair 
role for everyone to play from the point of view of actions from the point of view of financing so all those challenges are one way or the other very similar whether it is at a smaller scale or at the level of a country or at the level of a region or for the whole world so there's simply not enough money in the system that's number 1 the world is struggling and now with covid and the slowdown of economy it would be even a bigger challenge there are competing demands for any government the demands of health the demands of education uh, making sure people have decent jobs there are incentives for the industry there are incentives for making sure that different services for society continue and also being global citizen and for the governments to feel obliged to help others to have more cooperation whether it's south south north south triangular cooperation so all that continues from unesco's point of view it's our duty to bring to fore what are the key challenges what are the benefits of investment how can the nations work with each other and create a greater global good i give you one example which is with the government of malaysia with government of malaysia we have successfully created a funds in trust which is not for uh, only benefiting malaysia of course malaysia will benefit but how other countries especially small island and developing states and wider asia pacific can benefit by working together it's not just about money but how our resources of intellectual capacity and our progress in the universities and research institutes can work together so this is one area which has benefited malaysia as well as other countries also for nations to think about investing into their own key priorities and especially in the area of social inequalities in the areas of managing natural resources and looking into longer term sustainability that's where with the government of indonesia we have a wonderful experience in terms of self benefiting funds in trust looking into the issues like sustainable management of the tropical rainforest heritage of sumatra or looking into the issues of lakes and wetlands issues related to people with disabilities education through green school so there are a lot of those examples which we have but united nations system alone and these efforts are not enough we need to mobilize the whole society businesses have to play a much bigger role public private investments into these areas which are related to environmental challenges social challenges social inequalities and now human health and the, the digital divide and the health divide which is there so we have to work across societies for the global businesses they have to pay more attention to where their stakeholders are where they are making money how those stakeholders can benefit from it ethical practices and making sure the benefits are shared back with those uh, people who are generating those benefits for example for agriculture produce which is moving across the world for the goods and services which are being provided how do we make sure there is the element of fairness so we have to continue exciting the governments to do right kind of investments and at the same time create a whole of society approach there are some countries who are doing many excellent work of supporting others for example the government of japan with the japan fund in trust korea with koika like we have a 6 million dollar project in the philippines where we are looking into 
establishing facilities for out-of-school girls, at the same time helping build the capacity of the Department of Education in alternative learning systems. So there are many of those good examples. And then those examples need to be further strengthened by bringing public-private investment from the countries themselves. So everybody, as you say, has a role to play. I also wanted to ask you about your founding fellow of the Academy of Engineering and Technology of the Developing World. Could you speak to us about that role and what the vision is for that academy or the mandate of that academy? Safa, there is a divide in the world. The political tensions are there. Also, there is a difference of development across nations. Some nations are much more developed. The accreditation systems for many of the professional bodies are so tough that maybe other countries may not become members. And that's also maybe the purpose of an accreditation system, that the professionals should be accredited on the basis of competence and on the basis of making sure that the skill sets are at the right level. So this particular academy is to make sure that those countries who have little capacity or who are coming up with new ideas and also at the same time developing their own human resources in terms of engineering, they can also be mentored by other countries who have done this journey already. So in this regard, we have been working with many engineering organizations in Asia Pacific and being an engineer myself and coming from a country like Pakistan and having knowledge of the capacity needs of different nations. I have been trying to promote the twinning, mentoring kind of models so that we can help create quality assurance systems, help create learning for the universities as well as for the professional bodies uh, and the graduates themselves for the greater mobility of professionals. So for that, UNESCO has developed guidelines with the Federation of Engineering Institutions in Asia-Pacific and also with founding of the Academy for the Developing Nations Uh, We are trying to bring uh, greater capacity and uh, mentorship and also giving a chance to everyone so nobody is left behind. And then once these nations have reached uh, higher levels of learning and the professional bodies are accredited through such systems, they can then become part of the global accreditation systems, which presently only few nations enjoy. So that's what we are trying to do to have inclusive, sustainable development and giving pathways to every professional in the area of especially engineering, that they can be mobile, they can earn the respect which is needed, but also they should improve their own lives and improve the lives of millions around them. They should become technopreneurs and should be able to move to other countries with the same level of accreditation. That's what we are trying to do. Wonderful. So if there's someone interested in joining the academy, is it just that they apply? They can contact me. Uh, We are happy to put them in contact. The other professional bodies, especially who are part of such initiatives, we can help them link with the right training and opportunities. In terms of the human rights-based perspective, for example, the right to clean drinking water, have you found that using that approach, using that argument is something that has helped you when you're trying to build collaboration or trying to advocate for an issue? Is that an approach that you use yourself? Certainly, human rights-based approach is very, very important. So, for example, here in Indonesia with Kamna Sam, the Human Rights Commission 
we have been working how do we mainstream human rights into sustainable development into the sdgs but there are difficulties at the same time well let's imagine water is a basic human right but what kind of water it must be of the right quality and it should be of the right quantity and it should be available to everyone but how much of it should be available to everyone who will pay for it so those are big challenges water as a human right is acknowledged approved by the united nations general assembly and the governments have to of course invest the businesses should invest as part of their tsr programs and the, the big philanthropists must invest into it so that we can create opportunities there are not many nations who are able to provide such basic human rights education is a basic human right but we need books we need schools so that's where the investments from the governments and investments from the wider society have to be carefully thought through and making sure those rights are being provided in indonesia as you know we have also been working on people with disabilities how do we make sure people with disabilities get access to different parts of the city and the amenities they have and the network we have created with the network of the mayors of different cities is working very well where there is a lot of ownership and pride that my city is an inclusive city so we create awareness pride by doing the right things and making sure the rights are highlighted so those are the challenges for the wider united nation system and the human consciousness has to continue to bring to fore all those rights of everyone and the environment and making sure that nobody is left behind so that's the biggest challenge if we can get over social inequalities the world would be a much safer much more sustainable full of opportunities for everyone and until we reach that level we will not have done the sustainable development mission right in your experiences working at unesco especially in the leadership position have you find that there is enough diversity in positions of leadership in generally in un agencies in agencies that are working in the international development sector whether that's diversity in gender or nationality or background or you know sometimes these positions have very much a political motivation behind who is appointed so what are your thoughts on the the representation and diversity that you've observed or seen in this sector generally anyone can be part of the united nations this is my very strong conviction from an intern all the way to the positions of the leadership of course we need to make sure there is representation of all nations in unesco there is very careful consideration for gender that's very important number one and within the united nations system making sure that uh, Uh, we give due consideration to gender and it does not mean for female colleagues only making sure gender is mainstream so we are conscious about it secondly for the geographic distribution and geographic distribution uh, is a very important part of the processes of recruitment and of course there are considerations from making sure different regions and nations are empowered so the system has to take care of all those different variables the competence of the person uh, is at the center of it as well making sure that uh, we have the right person for the right job so that complicates the process beyond what would be the normal recruitment in a private company but i am a very strong believer that competence 
does pay. In my case, I come from Pakistan, as I have told you, Safa, and I feel very satisfied with working in the United Nations system and making sure that as a leader myself at a certain level, I should also empower colleagues around me and making sure there is no bias or no harassment and everyone should be able to do their job in the best possible way and serving all nations. Have you found that over the years, the more that you have gained experience and worked in different issues, have your motivations in your work changed or has your focus or your interests become maybe more uh, focused on a certain aspect or has that been affected over the years? I would say yes. I'm a very founded uh, scientist into the theories of science and the, the laws of science into research, into understanding the basics of uh, how different things happen. Now, with traveling around the world, working with different nations, I have become more and more convinced that social inequalities is a much bigger issue than the challenges of the natural resources. We have to create positive dialogue among society. Science has to play a role, but we must bring social and natural sciences together We must understand the perspectives of individuals, perspectives of nations, and make sure that there is constructive dialogue. And global peace is a much bigger challenge than any other challenges within our time. So we have to continue to work towards creating peace and, of course, sustainable development, as all of us are doing. World's peace is very fragile, and it can be disrupted for many, I would say, unreasonable reasons. So. Understanding of nations, understanding of individuals, understanding social inequalities, understanding the basic human rights and how they can be mainstreamed into our own lives and changing from oneself, like from myself. I have changed a lot over a period of time. I'm not really the very, you can say, curious scientist uh, what I used to be. I'm more conscious of the challenges which every one of us is facing in our lives and how can I bring my skills to help society from my own home to the complex challenges of the world. In your work as a professor or working with students or younger colleagues, are there certain um, perspectives or lessons or ideas that you always prioritize sharing with them in terms of the way that you think that the younger generation should perhaps face and deal with the problems at hand? Yes, certainly. The first one is we must give hope. Uh, When I talk to young people, I'm very happy to narrate my own story coming from a small place and how did I develop myself and we must work hard and we must think globally, act locally, be a global citizen. So that's one very important first message. Then, of course, there are many things we don't know. But, of course, we know many things as well. So how do we make sure that we continue to research and look for the ideas and at the same time also apply what we know? So those are important things. And also link and cooperate with each other and create opportunities, give respect to all cultures. That's very, very important. 
now, you know, we live in the time of the coronavirus pandemic and water and hygiene and sanitation issues and policies. They're taking on a heightened relevance just because of the global situation. Are there current projects or activities that you or your team are working on to address this pandemic in the Asia-Pacific region? Many. We have, in the area of education, education never stops. We are helping nations with distance learning, blended learning. We are also now looking into safety of schools as the schools open and providing guidelines. So that's the area of education. In the area of culture, how do we create a culture of understanding and how do we promote the social distancing with the right kind of understanding of the cultures and then how the tourism can look into the new challenges. So we have projects related to culture. Then, of course, in the area of natural sciences, from building ventilators, understanding the testing methods, the data, big data, artificial intelligence all the way to community-based information. So we have many of those actions within our science family, UNESCO centers, UNESCO chairs. We are looking into how can we monitor the sewage from different parts of the city to understand where are the hotspots for coronavirus. So there are a lot of those ideas within water resources, how the environment is changing, how the environment is Different. So we have within our biosphere program, very active activities related to that. We are promoting open science so that the science of coronavirus can be shared across the nations. Then in the area of communication and information, we are looking into the issues of fake news and social media, making sure the right kind of information is reaching the people. Then in social and human sciences area, this whole issue of the biasness of society to certain stereotypes or to certain people. And so how do we make sure that people get over those kind of differences at these difficult times? So there are many activities which we are currently doing in Asia Pacific. So yesterday we had a very big webinar where we bring all the UNESCO centers, UNESCO chairs, and key universities looking into the issues related to coronavirus and natural sciences. And a very big conclusion was the science has to now very carefully look into economy and the society together with providing solutions for issues of detection kits uh, to vaccines to all the way to creating opportunities at the local level, the local industries. So many of those things UNESCO is working together with different stakeholders and with the uh, member states. We should also think about the beneficiaries, the people who are never heard. So how do we make those people be heard at different levels? That's our challenge collectively. How do we empower societies? And that's a struggle which we must continue. Yes, the struggle continues, as you say. Thank you so much for speaking with us and sharing your thoughts. It's been a pleasure to learn from you, and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much again. Thank you, Safa. Have a wonderful day. Thank you also to our listeners. To keep up with our latest episodes, you can listen to us on your preferred podcast provider and follow us on social media. If you have listener questions that you would like me to ask our future guests, please feel free to email them to us at rethinkingdevelopmentpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.